Would you pray with me again? Dear Lord, I thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity to be here together. We thank you for the opportunity to open up your word together. I pray right now that you fill us with your spirit. Fill us with an understanding that goes beyond just us. And help us, Lord, to open our hearts to you even as we open up your word to us. We give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. We talked before about, um, about how, at least on paper, on paper the United States was trying to echo some, some Christian sentiments, but even within a, a country that at least purported to be a Judeo-Christian country, the church has not had an easy time of it. How much more, if you're talking about something like first century Rome, or Renaissance Europe, or China today, that are actively attempting to slam the church. We, we've talked about China even just recently, about how China has tried to be very controlling. It's really clamped down on religion. They force parents to sign contracts that they will keep their children from religion before the age of 18, that they create controlling state churches and film everybody coming in and out, that they're even in the process of trying to write their own Bible so that they can use religion to undermine, to undermine the very concept of religion. What does that do to the church? And yet, in the first century Rome, and in, in Renaissance Europe, and even in China today, we see Christians grow. We see the church grow in depth and number and strength and commitment. It, it goes against conventional growth wisdom, but the fact is that, that even when the church is actively undermining the church, even when like the Catholic Church in the Renaissance was by force trying to destroy all the other versions of Christianity. I'm looking at you, Albigensian Crusade. Um, when, the, when the Catholic... That's a joke to everybody that went through the Sunday school class on history. Never mind. Anyway, when the church is even trying to undermine the church, the undermined part still grows the attacked part still strengthens. When the Vikings tried to torture Christianity out of Christians, instead of that happening, Christianity became the dominant religion of the Vikings. Jesus beat Thor, not with force of arms, but by stretching out his arms and saying, I'm willing to die for the people torturing me. And the Vikings went, huh, that's strength. Now, when, they, when I say this, I'm not saying that we should be seeking suffering out. I'm not saying that it's wrong to pray for, for strength or for safety or for comfort. I'm saying that like any muscle, faith grows when it's tested, when it has pushback, and it atrophies when it's left unused. It's, it's the nature of it. When we see the church in China being pressed down, oppressed, strangled, growing in number and depth and strength and commitment, it's growing because it has to. It either grows or dies. And it's chosen growth. Like any seed that needs to sprout, Christianity needs to push up through the earth and grow or else it smothers and dies in silence. It's just the nature of it. When your only choices are to grow or die, real Christianity grows. But when your choices are to grow or do nothing, 
That's a little different. When there's no pressure to grow, no pressure to be something different, when there's no life-threatening motivation to truly take your Christianity seriously, parents of children, take note. When given the option to do something or to do nothing, we will tend to do nothing. When given the option to grow and change by pushing against strong oppression or just do nothing and do whatever we felt like in the first place, we will just tend to do nothing and not change, not do anything different. If we can survive by doing very little, then we will do very little. And I don't even say that as an indictment. It's just physics. If you could achieve X with hard work or no work, which would you do? You'd go, well, do it with no work. Why make it harder for yourself? Why do that? Most Christians in the United States right now don't really have to do much of anything to be Christians. At least to feel like they're being Christians. They just plop into a pew and say, I guess I'm a Christian. And as long as you can feel churched up without doing much of anything to change or reflect Christ as opposed to changing and reflecting the world, we'll tend to just plop. And like anything that doesn't strain their muscles, we'll tend to get soft and misshapen in our faith because we can and more or less survive. So here's the thing. If you really want to destroy a church, don't tear down their buildings. Don't burn its members at the stake. That's the sort of thing that makes them dig in. They go, oh, no, I've got to take my faith seriously. If you want to destroy a church, make it comfortable. Make it comfortable. Make the world around it attractive so that the Christians go, I don't even need to reach out. It more or less looks the way I want it to look. Or even make it look in such a way that I kind of want to be more like that. I don't like that. I look at the church and I say, well, the church is all messed up. Oh, I want to look like these people. These people have it together. Do that. That's the best way. Make the church desire to rip itself apart. Or, or put leaders into place in our country, in our cities, in our states that sort of echo Christianity. Let the church feel like they're part of the power structure so that they can be amenable, they can be accessible to everybody without stirring the waters of conviction. If you want to destroy the church, don't burn it at the stake. Drown it in soccer leagues and 401ks and church play or school plays. Let's even do it that way, school plays. None of which are bad. But do everything that you can to remind them that Christianity is just another consumable, sidelineable luxury in their life, just like everything else in the world. So the church is just like everything else in the world. Make the church so comfortable that it feels at home. Then it's pointless. Now I say all this not because I'm trying to beat my own horse here, but because we're going through 1 Peter. And if there's one thing that we keep seeing in 1 Peter, by the way, open up your Bibles to 1 Peter if you haven't done that already. 1 Peter is kind of like, especially at this beginning, it's kind of like a Christianity 101. It's hitting several core things over and over again. And if there's one theme that he has hit, I don't know how many times, it's that this world is not our home. We're just passing through here. This world 
is a broken place. And it's our mission field, not our home. So when you look at this, even in, in, in verse 1, he called us, what, strangers in the world, right? Verses 3 through 4, he reminds us we're just passing through on our way to our true home in heaven. Verses 15 to 16 called us to be set apart, not from this, po- this place, but we're set apart within this place. Verse 17 again calls us strangers, telling us to live in reverent fear here rather than in worldly comfort here. It's a theme. It's not just me beating this drum. It's, it's Peter. I can't go through First Peter without beating the drum that Peter did. I mean, I can, but I'd have to mangle the text, and why would I do that? I know it would make people feel more comfortable sometimes, but I just preached against that, so no, I'm not going to do that. We struggle sometimes to reach out to people around us because we look at all those sticky, dirty, messed up people and we're so comfortable sometimes we forget that we are sticky, dirty, messed up people. Or we look at them and go, no, nah, sticky, dirty, messed up, that's, the, that's, that's what life normally is. There's nothing wrong with them, they're just being human. Or we just say, I'm so comfortable in this particular niche, in this particular box that I don't want to reach out to sticky, dirty, messed up people because my life is sticky and dirty and messed up enough, thank you. In some ways, some ways, I almost envy the church in China because they're reminded every day this world is not their home. They're not wanted here. They don't look like here. They don't act like here. And here doesn't like them. Like, that's helpful. Because every day here I'm reminded that I like it here. And it's easy here, for the most part. We can say the world is not our home. Sometimes we here will say, ah, this isn't our home. But sometimes when we say that, it's like tinged with this nostalgic sense of, it used to be, but it's not now. It's not anymore. I don't even recognize this place. But if we could just get the right guy in office, if we could just get the right people and the Supreme Court, if we could just, then then we could. This place has never been our home. And it will never be our home, this side of the place being wiped clean. It's just not the way it works. You could put the Pope in the White House with Billy Graham as his vice president, and it would still be a broken, non-Christian world that needs Jesus. It's just the way it works. So even if we wrap ourselves in the softest parts of this place, like a snuggly quilt all that would do is make us feel more comfortable and less like we have the need to reach out to those around us just doesn't work that way it shouldn't work that way remember how peter finished or started off chapter two let's do it that way if you're at first peter chapter two verse one stripping off all malice and all deceit all hypocrisy all envy all slander of every kind this clothing metaphor right He said, I want you to take all that stuff off. Take all those clothes off. Like newborn babes crave pure spiritual milk. Desire it, lust after it, yearn for it, crave it. Cry for it like a newborn. You ever hear a newborn baby go, I'm hungry now, feed me now. That, that's what I want every Christian to do all the time. For God. I want you to hunger for God like that baby is going, I'm starving to death and I need it now. And if you go, I'm fine. 
What are we missing? Crave it. Crave pure spiritual milk, Peter says, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. You're newborn babies. I want you to grow up. You need your milk. Now that you've tasted that the Lord is good, once you've tasted God, once you, you, how could you settle for something less than that? Once you've been there, crave him, crave his word, crave his voice, yearn for him like if you've lived a day without him, you'd go into withdrawal. You'll starve without him. Now that you've tasted the Lord is good, now that you know what you've been missing, the world doesn't know, but you do. And that should change you. You want to know what to do with that? Get in his word every day. Pray to him every day. Interact with him. Converse with him. I talk with God all the time. Sometimes it's structured prayer. Sometimes it's, seriously? Okay. Talk to God. Engage with God every day. As you come to him, the living stone, and I have to stop there, um, because i got to explain what that means. It's not the same thing as talking about living rock. You ever hear the expression living rock, cut from the living rock? It's an old-fashioned way of talking about rock that's still attached to the ground. You touch a mountain, and that's the living rock. You chop it out, and you form it, and that's stone that a mason can use to build a wall with, right? It's not living rock anymore. It's this cut, prepared stone. Peter says that somehow he is cut, prepared stone that's still living. He's not just chopped from the living rock and he's been separated. He goes, no, 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 no. Elsewhere, Christ has been called living water and living bread and living way, even life itself. So far in First Peter, he's called him a living hope. He's talked about the living word. And now he's like, unlike these dead idols, unlike the cold stone that makes up the walls here, Christ is a living building, a living stone. And as you come to him, the living stone, who is cut from God's mountain and is still just as connected to God because he is still God in the flesh. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, chosen by God, precious to God, because the world didn't get him. They didn't understand him. They think he's a nice guy, a good teacher, solid moral leader, maybe a bit of a nut, maybe a myth, but the son of God, the savior, God in the flesh, they don't get that. And I don't say that as an indictment because for each of us, there was a time in our lives where we didn't get that. There's a time in your life where you sat there and said, I I have no knowledge of God. I've got no relationship with God. I've got no connection. It's not that we're smarter or better than the world in any way. It's just we are beggars who figured out where to find the bread that gives us life. We're surrounded by beggars starving. How How about we tell them? Tell them where they can find bread. It's up to them whether they do it, but let's tell them. But to God, Christ isn't just nice or good or a bit of a nut, maybe a myth. He's precious. He's prized of phenomenal value. He's the only living stone, right? Yes? No! Keep reading. I don't trust Pastor Kevin questions. (laughs) As you come to him, the living stone, right? Rejected by men, chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Is Jesus the only living stone? No. You guys, we, us, pulled from the living rock 
and yet imbued with life, even as we're cut and prepared to be built into something special. You are living stones. Because the church is not built out of bricks or steeples, right? Pews. That's not what a church has. This place is just a tent, right? Where the church meets. Because y'all the church, right? We are the church. Not this. This is just our meeting house. But we are the church. And the gates of the grave itself can't tear you down. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. You are spiritual bricks being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices. Remember the other week when we talked about that? What's a priest? What did priests do in the Old Testament? They blasted and made these physical sacrifices on behalf of the people, right? They prayed on behalf of the people. They stood between the people and God and said, I'll be your mediator. Peter says, you're a holy priesthood. That's what you're supposed to be. You don't need a human priest to bless any more physical sacrifices. There was one physical sacrifice. It was made, and it's done. You don't need a priest to pray for you. By that I mean pray instead of you. There's nobody between you and your Father. There's nobody between you and Christ. There's nobody. There's no curtain separating you. There's no priest saying, here, let me do this holy stuff for you so that you don't have to. You're the priest. You're the priest who stands before God. But if you don't stand before God before somebody else, I am not the priest for Kim, standing between God and Kim. Who am I the priest for? Who do I stand between God and them for? Who does Kim stand between God and people for? Everybody who's already not part of this priesthood. The entire rest of the planet. They are not the people we stand against. They're the people we stand for. That we stand where we stand and say, let me bring you here. And you come stand with me and be a priest with me. To that guy over there. So that he can come up and be a priest to her over there. That's how this works. That's how it's always worked. <laughs> and terrifyingly, it works its best when somebody goes, stop it. That's when it works its best because we go, no, because this is important. When people say, fine, go ahead, it doesn't matter, and we go, thanks, you're right, it doesn't. That's, that's when we undermine this. Paul reminds us there's one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. No one stands between us. So he says, you, Peter says, you, you guys hearing me right now, like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Back in Exodus, we were called a kingdom of priests, a kingdom made out of priests, building blocks, cut, prepared, ready to go, chopped out of the mountain but still alive. For Peter says, in Isaiah... It says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, in Jerusalem, in, in Judea, a, a chosen, precious cornerstone. And the one who trusts in him it will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who don't believe, Psalms tells us that the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. 
But according to Isaiah, that same stone can be a stone that causes men to stumble, a rock that makes them fall. I love Peter going, let me just quote Bible verses all over the place. Because for years I didn't do nothing but sit there and fish and quote Bible verses with my brother. They sat there all night discussing this stuff. I'm, I'm half a rabbi already. I love the extended stone analogy given to us by a guy that Jesus nicknamed The Rock. He's like, I'm all over this. Trust me, I spent like three years hearing every rock verse in Scripture. I'm on it. But maybe we should unpack this a little bit because it's a good tangible metaphor and we can miss it. So I'm going to try to give you a nice little visual metaphor here. I want you to think about it this way. Think about the church. This is the church built like a, like a stone archway filled with living stones like you and me. Now, Jesus is the capstone. Let me click. There, there we go. Jesus is the capstone. It's the keystone at the top of an arch that links all the other stones together. You've seen some of these in like older buildings, right? Okay, now, the whole point of this is that by exerting force on all the other stones, it, it holds them together. It keeps them solid. Staying together, staying in shape, isn't actually all that hard because it's built that way. It just follows what it's built to do. Some stone archways have stuck around like that for centuries. Millennia, they don't even necessarily need mortar. They just work. Because if you get decent stones made out of decent stuff and you get them cut and put together the way they're supposed to, it holds together. That's solid. Now what happens if you remove the capstone? Yeah, what happens if you took Jesus out of the equation? The whole thing is just going to fall in because there's nothing holding it together. The whole thing is going to fall apart, piece by piece, stone by stone. It's going to bloop, bloop, bloop. Each part is going to fall in over and over and over again. The same mass that held it together is now going to tear it apart. We need that capstone. We need it for, for stability, for structure, for existence. How important is it that we don't forget Christ and him crucified in everything that we do? Because sometimes the church can either be about all the stuff we hate or it can be about, well, all the stuff they want. Technically, it's supposed to be all about Christ lived out in the right ways, with the right heart. But we also need the cornerstones, right? You need good foundational blocks, the base stones that make everything else stand solid. If these cornerstones aren't solid, what happens? If the cornerstones just crumble and fall apart, the rest of the arch is fine? No, it's, it's not going to, the whole archway is going to crumble because it's not solid. It's going to fall apart. All right, so let's go back through this. In Isaiah, it says, See, I lay in a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, to you who believe, this stone is precious because Jesus is the ultimate precious stone, the most reliable foundation you could build on. That's, that's the whole point. If our, if our church makes... Jesus, the foundation of our church, makes the word of God the foundation. Death itself can't tear us down. That's the beauty of it. That's what Jesus promised us. To you who believe, 
this stone is precious. But to those who don't believe, Psalms tells us, Psalm 118, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. So what happens with this? Is, is, Jesus, the, is Jesus the foundation that, causes, that gives us stability? Or, nope, I'll go back. Is Jesus, if you could go back, there you go. Is Jesus the capstone that gives us stability or the cornerstone that gives us foundation? It's beautiful. Thank you very much. He's both. And it's awfully easy to say that. It's awfully easy in America for us to say that. It's not always simple for us to figure out how to live that out on a daily basis. What do we do with that? How do we make his priorities our foundation? How do we make focusing on him our strength? A lot of times we we try to echo what we see as the values of the church when what we really need to do is make sure we're looking at the values of the Messiah, the values of the Son of God, and do that. We need to follow his priority. What happens happens when Jesus says, it's my priority that you go and share the gospel, preach to all the nations, I want you to make disciples of all people? We go, yeah, I, I agree with that verse. You go, yeah. He's telling you that. Go, you go and make disciples. Do you go, ah, no? He's no longer your capstone. He's not the focus, right? What if Jesus says, I'm going to call you into a, a dangerous situation where, where, where your life or your livelihoods are in danger? In China, I'm going to call you to be a Christian in China. Do you say, okay. Or do you say, ah, oh, can I not? I'm going to call you to be overtly a Christian in America. Oh, that could get me banned from Facebook. What if he calls you to trust in him and then calls you to do something not only unpleasant, but something you think is patently unfair? Do what I tell you to do here. And you go, absolutely. And you go, all right, I need you to do this. And you go, I really didn't want to. Wait, are you telling her to do it? No, I'm telling you to. Did you just tell me to give all I have to the poor? Yes. Did you tell him to give all he has to the poor? No. But you're telling me to give all I have to the poor? Yes. Well, that's not fair. I'm sorry, have you ever done that? Have you ever disregarded the priority of Christ by saying, but that's not fair? Why did he get the blessing I didn't? Why calling me to do something you didn't call her to do? I don't understand. That doesn't seem right. We need equal opportunity, equal outcome in all things, or else, God, you're doing it wrong. What if God asks you to make him the absolute foundation of everything you do? Whether that's decision to go into professional ministry, or whether that's saying, nope, you're an engineer, but I want you to be an engineer for Jesus every day that you go to work. You're a certified public accountant. I want you to be a CPA for Jesus. Every day that you go to work, that's your mission field. I want you to think of it as your mission field. Every interaction that you have, I want you to think, how does this honor Christ? Or does that just seem too complicated? What happens if one of these days you find yourself finding that capstone more of a pressure than you can bear? According to Isaiah, that same stone can be a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Because the same stone 
if it's heavy and it's strong, can either build you up or make you trip. He's quoting Isaiah. It's also the same play on words that Jesus used back in Matthew. Jesus turned and said to Peter, so he knows this word, get behind me, Satan, you're a stumbling block to me. Petros, Peter, rock. You are not a building stone, you're a stumbling stone. The word in Greek is skandalon, from which we get our English word scandal, something that you trip and fall over. Yes, it's raining. You can see from all your faces, you realize that. But you can't get around this particular rock. You're either going to build on it, or you're going to trip over it. It's going to be a cornerstone, or it's going to be a road hazard. There's nothing in between. People stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Because even then, God is still sovereign. They might stumble and fall, but what God has built will continue to stand. It's just the nature of it. The fact that they don't get it, that doesn't make a difference. It's still going to be there. And I can say they. They will stumble over it. They will do that. But let's be honest. At any given moment, you and I can still trip on it. At any given moment, you and I can still trip over Jesus instead of building on Jesus. It's just the way it works. So we pretty much have exhausted the rock stone analogy, right? Because we talked about the capstone and the cornerstone. Is there any other rocks that we're talking about here? Oh, yes. There's one other. There's the, there's the capstone, there's the cornerstone, but then there's also us, right? There's also us and everything that we're doing. Here, keep going, and then we'll do one more, one more. There we go. Uh, there's the capstone and cornerstone, and one more then. There's the rest of us. There's us, right? We are being built into a holy spiritual household, holy spiritual priesthood. We are part of the arch. So without the active participation of these stones, do we still have an archway? Here. Is that still an arch? No. I mean, still cornerstones. It's still a capstone that may or may not stay there, but it's not an arch. Jesus is still there, but it's not a church. world may not get Jesus, but you and I do. And we are being chiseled into shape to be part of that archway. Each one of us, a specific part living stones with them. The world may not get Jesus, but you, on the other hand, Peter says, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. Again, echoing Exodus. How many times has he said royal priesthood, royal priesthood, kingdom of priests? You are a holy priesthood. That's what you guys are. You're a kingdom of priests, a whole kingdom built out of priests, shaped in the living stone, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, set apart within this place. In fact, the King James Version even uses the phrase a peculiar people. based on the original meaning of the word peculiar, which means property bought at a price. That's what you are. God paid for you, and you are his. That's what they mean by peculiar. And sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we hide behind the arch instead of being part of it. Sometimes we think it doesn't really matter. How important can one stone be? What happens when that one stone excuses itself? Is that okay? No. It undermines the whole structural integrity of that side of the arch. There's a whole chunk that was leaning on that. And the world is constantly trying to say, don't be this. Don't be part of this arch. Don't be like that. If every day the world is pounding you into its shape, do you see why every day we need to say, Lord, remind me why I'm here. Remind me to be part of this. 
Because again, the best way to undermine the church is not persecution. Persecution tends to strengthen the stones because they lean more heavily on each other. They lean more heavily on the foundation and they lean more heavily on the capstone for support. If you want to make a Christian lose structural integrity, Lord, take care of wherever that's going. If you want to make a Christian lose structural integrity, make it comfortable and to feel safe for him to disengage and say, ah, the institution just keeps going. It's no big deal. It's okay for you to be disconnected. It's okay to feel like you can be here in this place and not in some weird priestly archway that seems unnatural. Once you were not a people, Peter says. At one point, you, you, we really were just part of this world. But now you are the people of God, and that changes you. Once you had not received mercy, though that may have felt comfortable, you were nonetheless lost in your sins, unforgiven, just like your neighbor who doesn't know the Lord still is. But now you've received mercy, and that changes you. This isn't about... You have to attend church every Sunday. This isn't about you have to give money in a plate. This isn't about... This is about saying, are you connected to the vine? Do you realize that you are part of this holy priesthood and that everything you do is an embassy for heaven? Dear friends, he says, literally, beloved, I urge you, I come alongside of you, I call out to you. Beloved, I call out to you as aliens, strangers in the world, because he can't stop hitting this theme. You can't stop over and over. Beloved, I'm calling, I'm begging for you as aliens and strangers in this world, as foreigners here, as sojourners just passing through. This world should feel as alien to you as you should seem to it. Beloved, I urge you to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. And I could give you a laundry list. Oh, there's, Paul gives you lists of sins that you can look at. There's a laundry list of naughty things. not just the desires themselves this desire to look like everyone and everything else to fit in and be a a round peg for the round hole instead of a square peg for the round hole he's like no stop don't go there don't be just like everyone else don't think just like everyone and everything else here in this lost and broken world just because you don't want to feel so alien in fact he says in verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans. And that's not, that's not a bad word. It just means anybody who isn't a believer. It's, I know it's a pejorative nowadays, but at the time, not necessarily. Live such good lives among those who are not Christians that though they accuse you of doing wrong because you seem so bizarre to them, they may still nonetheless just see your good deeds. And when the time comes, glorify God on the day he visits us. Not because you're so awesome, but because you reflect God and God is so awesome. Not because you're so great, but because you love God so dearly that you show him every day and the world goes, what's different about you? What's different about this? You got passed over for promotion at work and you went, hey, Lord, give it, Lord, take it away. Yeah. Aren't you angry that, aren't you angry that Alex got your position? I would have liked it, but why would I be angry? What's wrong with you? I just called you a nasty name. And you go, don't do that. Like, did you call me a nasty name back? Did you kick me in the shins? Did you shoot me in the head? Why would I do that? Because I called you a nasty name. 
and I didn't like it. Exactly. So why would I do that back? If I didn't like it, why would I do that to you? <laughs> why would I do that? What's wrong with you? Live such good lives amongst the, amongst the unbelievers that they go, what's wrong with you? And you go, nothing, what's wrong with you? Praise God, not me. What's interesting is that you're drawing them to the difference, to the distinction that you are a living stone instead of dead rock. The prophet Hosea named his children not my people and not pitied because the Hosea household was no fun. But he was expressing God's frustration with his people and his, their refusal to admit their sins, turn and be forgiven. But God also promised that once, once people let him cleanse their hearts, he says in Hosea, I will say to those called not my people that you are my people now. And they will say, you are my God. He says, in the place where it was said to them, you're not my people, they will be called the sons of the living God. So it's interesting. Peter's nodding back even to that Bible verse here. He says, once you and I were not a people, but now we're the people of God. Once you and I had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. Now's the time that God is reversing everything that separated us from him. All the stuff that we did that separated us from him. He's changing all of that. You're the net result of that. Live changed lives. Live that out. You've been called to be holy, to be set apart, precious stones, built into a spiritual house. Be that. You're called to be part of a kingdom of priests for this whole broken planet. Be that. Love them. Even in their brokenness. Not because of their brokenness, but because there are only two kinds of people on the planet, right? Those who are your brother and sister in Christ and those who you would like to be your brother and sister in Christ. That's it. So reach out to them, love them well as an act of worship. Be ambassadors of, of God so that where you stand is holy ground and where you speak is an embassy of heaven. Lean on his strength. If you actually take that seriously, how does that change you today? How does that change what you do as a parent, as a spouse, as a co-worker, as a neighbor? How should it change us? Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you that you love us exactly where we are. And you love us so much that you don't leave us where we are. I thank you that you know exactly how broken we are. We all are. And you love us right in our brokenness. In fact, you love us so much that you were willing to die, shed your blood on the cross to wash us clean from our sin and to begin to repair the brokenness to die for those torturing you and look at them and say, you are my brother, you are my sister, and I love you. Help us, Lord, to reflect that to those around us. Be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. We have the opportunity now to come and have a family meal together because that's, that's what the Lord's Supper is. It's a family meal, right? This is a derivation of that last supper that Jesus had with his disciples, that, that final Seder at Passover. 
if you are a Christian, if you are part of the family of God, if you know Christ as your Savior, if you have been washed clean and his blood has brought you adoption into his household, if you are a Christian, this is your family meal. If you're not a Christian, I encourage you to stop and think about what we've been talking about here today, about the distinction, the difference. Not, not a distinction of us versus them, the distinction of, oh, look what God has given all of us. How do we help others see it? I encourage you, all of us, to remember that this is a reminder of what Christ has done for us and everything that happened and that can happen in everybody's lives.